got that good hair, too. You like what? I like girls with that light complexion look. Oh, you're a moron. I can't help it. What, being a moron? Yeah, that too. You're the first one out there with a dashiki talking that crap. I'm a victim. Good hair. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Hey, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> I have to say, I, I, Chameleon Street, this is like a 23-year journey for me. I, I'm not just, this isn't just like a job. Chameleon Street's one of my favorite films ever, so I'll get all the fan stuff out of the way first. It's like a big deal to be speaking. Wow, to I, are you saying that you saw the film 23 years ago? Uh... I started searching out for it 23 years ago. It wasn't easy to find back in the late 90s, but that's right. when the journey started. Uh, that's actually, I mean, if you want to get into it, that's kind of my first thing. I kind of represent a generation of folks who discovered Chameleon Street through the Black Star album. Right. Um, and I feel like, because I've, I've read anything I could on this movie in interviews, and I guess some film people, they're not necessarily in tune with the hip-hop culture, but I, 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 it doesn't come up so much, but I guess you sound familiar. Like, are you aware of, like, the impact that that, like, little snippet had on the Black Star album to, like, a generation of kids, you know, from who were teenagers in the late 80s? Was that ever, like, a thing to you? Like, you know? uh, I am uh, I'm very aware. I'm very aware. Right. And... Uh, Extremely grateful to both most Def and Talib regarding, you know, the inclusion of that because, as you know, I can tell you have, you know, you've been with Comedian Street for quite a while, so you're probably very aware that during the 90s, and and early 2000s, the film was really struggling in in terms of its profile, and you know the most deaf and Talib Kweli, they they really you know shot us into the stratosphere when they released that album. So I'm very grateful for that, and you know. Yeah, I mean, again, I you know, obviously the internet was a thing in the late '90s, but it's not like it was today when you could reach out to stuff. Because I, you know, my senior year of high school was between '98 and '99. That's when the Blackstar album came out, and I just right. over I discovered so many people had the same experiences me where they were just like, what is that from? Like, what movie, you know, is that from? I remember I asked my dad, I asked, you know, so many people. Then I went off to college. I went to Hampton University, and someone just happened to know. He's like, oh, it's from this movie called Chameleon Street. And I was like, what is that? And then, again, that started another journey to, like, try to find a copy of it. I remember, you know, going on early Internet sites, and, you know, since day one, you're, you're, you have to be familiar with this. You know, Elvis Mitchell and Armin White are probably two – of the biggest warriors or champions of this film. That's right. They were That's kind right. of earlier people to always kind of have this movie out, 
you know, out there in the stratosphere, and I eventually found it. So I, 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 just, I, I wanted to get that one question out because that was such a the, the Black Star album is such a big deal, and I just think some folks in the film world who may have interviewed you before aren't as familiar with the impact of that of that album. So yeah, I, yeah, you're right, you're right. In fact, uh, I I was just trying to think as you're talking how many times an interviewer has brought that up. And uh, I think one time somebody did, I can't quite recall who, but, uh, you know, the entire saga, Marcus, uh, of Chameleon Street from 1990 until 2021, the entire saga has been uh, one of, war yeah you know regarding distribution so uh when something like black star comes out or every review from every critic over those 30 years uh or i remember the first time i did, did a podcast in 2009 with mike plant uh I mean, every, it's been like one incremental step following another. And, of course, that has to do with the fact that an independent film can be made without any input from Hollywood. But when it comes to distribution, brother? Yeah, that's, yeah. I, I Again, your journey and just other films, other specific films, even as just a fan slash critic journalist, I, I you, you learn that over the years that, yeah, making it's easy, but trying to get it into people's eyes is, is, is a whole different struggle, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I, I know. I, so I wonder, are you okay with terms like cult film or cult classic or like even like a term that I kind of came up with for movies like this, like respectably obscure in the sense that like maybe not everyone might know about it, but those that do know about it, hold it to the utmost, you know, are are you fine with a label like that? Like, Oh, it's a cult movie. Or it's a cult classic. Or what are your thoughts on, on terms like that with, with chameleon street specifically? Well, you know, the only term that I'm slightly ambivalent about, is art house sure <laughs> because when i you know whenever i hear that term it immediately translates in my mind as no money right. art house no money but uh all the other terms are fine i i mean i understand why uh they are designations for films you know, that usually, usually, even though there are some Hollywood films that are now being called, um, if if not art house, they're being called cult classics. Uh, so I don't have any real problem. The, the only problem, Marcus, is getting the film to an audience. And, you know, I've, I've said what I'm about to tell you before, and I only use 
this film as an example. I could use many films, but around the same time Chameleon Street came out, in, in January 1990, when we won Sundance, and then we waited a year for a boutique distributor to pick us up. Right. Around that, you know, around that same time, Marcus, there was a movie called Weekend at Bernie's. Oh, yeah. I, I, I remember. Yeah, it was about nine when that came out. I remember. Well, man, I, I could mention that film in Flint, Michigan, in Timbuktu, in Africa, in France, or wherever. I can mention that film, and everybody knows that film. Yeah. I can mention Chameleon Street in Flint, where it was made, or any other place. Sure. Have you heard of Chameleon Street? No. Never heard of it. Yeah. So, you know, the power of Hollywood distribution is staggering. Yeah. It's, you know... With the whole Hollywood thing, it kind of it's actually perfectly leads me to like my next question slash point with this kind of now revival of Chameleon Street with the BAM screening, with the New York Film Festival screening, the the, the future re-release, of, you know, of the DVD. By the way, I have the original D- DVD. I won in 2010. BAM did a screening of Chameleon Street, and they had they did like a trivia question about the movie to like win the DVD, and I, I was the person in the audience who won that. <laughs> I, I really, one, but I, I do remember I still have it, so it's like a prized possession. Incredible, yeah, incredible. They, they one of the questions that they asked, they got me the DVD. It was like, "What band T-shirt is Wendell B. Harris wearing in this certain specific scene?" And I was like, "Oh, Bauhaus." And that was so. That's just kind of <laughs> times I've seen them. Like a question like that, just kind of, oh, I know it right away. So, but. You know, with, with that, with, with with what's happening now, do you feel kind of a personal sort of vindication or satisfaction with the resurgence of this film, especially with the experience that you've had in Hollywood over the years? Like, I, I, I guess I could say blackballed, but I, I mean that I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. I guess I, I've read interviews with you where you even said yourself, where just like your name was sort of became bad news you know, in, in, in the industry at a certain point. So now in 2021, to some degree, do you sit back now and just kind of have this feeling like, hey, my, my move, I mean, it worked to some degree. People are still talking about it. It's still held in high regard. Do you have that feeling or is it just, or, or not really? <laughs> no, I would never say not really because, oh. okay. Okay. You, you know, what is happening right now, Marcus, has actually never happened before. What has you know? What has happened for thirty years is a review here, a review there. A few months or a couple of years later, a review here, a review there. A year later, another review, another festival. Yeah. Hey, man. You know, look. I can testify to the fact that a filmmaker can go to a hundred film festivals and screen their film. And that will not get you to a mainstream audience. Sure. What you end up having are a group of film critics and a select group 
of audience members who support the film. But, you know, one screening on television in all four regions of the United States, one screening, Marcus, would, yeah. would surpass 30 years of going to film festivals. Sure. So uh, I am extremely excited and gratified. I mean, I find myself in the last couple weeks, last few weeks, I find myself walking around the house and I'll suddenly notice that I'm kind of smiling. And, oh, that's, oh, that's great. I love hearing that. You know, I that has never happened before. And what is happening now is like Niagara Falls compared to, you know, a dribble coming out of a spigot yeah. for 30 years. Right. That's, you know, going back on these 30 years, I'm noticing, and it's not just you, but there's a small group of folks where it just seems like some of the things that you got pushed back on with Chameleon Street or with your career are things that, I mean, and I do have to make this about race. I mean, you know, I'm black, you're black, and Chameleon Street touches on that. I just feel like the things you did that you got, I guess, in trouble for, blackballed, whatever term you want to use, when there's a non-black filmmaker, specifically like a white filmmaker, and they do certain things that you did, it's almost romanticized, and they're called mavericks, and they're called, you know, like they're very determined. But it seems mm -hmm. like you didn't get that. And I guess that's obviously that's bigger than – I don't want to answer the question for you. It just seems like that's obviously bigger than just movie making. That's just kind of the world. But <laughs> am I on to something? Am I, am I talking nonsense, or is what I'm saying making sense? Like, did, did you feel that? Like, hey, I'm a black filmmaker. I know what I want. And they're not giving what I want. But at the same time, I'm not going to name names, but there are lots of contemporaries who approached stuff the same way that you did, and it worked out. And right. a lot of that has to be about race, specifically you being a black man and just kind of the weird boogeyman aspect that comes along with us in, in the world, not 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 just in movies. Like, did, was that part of your frustration? Did, did, did you feel that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, you're not talking fantasy. You're talking reality. Sure. You know, the, the sad fact is if everybody in Chameleon Street had been white, there never would have been any of this problem. You know, the film would have had the same kind of release weekend that Bernie's got. Uh, so, well, you know, yeah. I don't want to cut you off, but this is to be specific. We ten years, well, a little over ten years later, you know, we got Catch Me If You Can, which that's another thing where you know, another good friend of mine, my friend John, he's kind of the only person in to make this correlation where it's like, to some degree, Chameleon Street was Catch Me If You Can like, 11 years prior, both the movie and the real story. It, like, did, did you ever see Catch Me If You Can, and did you ever kind of think to yourself, like, well, wait a minute, I made Chameleon Street. It's like, and I get it, Steven Spielberg is Steven Spielberg, but it's kind of like, did you ever kind of feel like, I did this? 
already, you know? Yeah, uh, you know, it's kind of funny you would bring that up because when Catch Me came out, I mm. got phone calls and okay. Okay. All, you know, all, uh, all kinds of people, you know, friends and colleagues and people who knew me, they, they called me up and said, Wendell, Wendell, hey, man, Spielberg stole your movie. And yeah. uh, actually, I have not seen the entire – I saw, I think, the first uh, – like the first half hour of it, um, isn't isn't Christopher Walken in that movie? Yeah, uh, purposeful. It's one of his last great performances. Actually, he was nominated for an Oscar for supporting actor for Catch Me If You Can. Yeah, he plays um, Frank Abagnale, the character that Leonardo DiCaprio plays. He plays his father, Christopher Walken. Oh, okay, right, and that's where he talks about he w- saved the watch of his rectum or something. Oh, that's Pulp Fiction. That that's um that that Oh that's that, full picture. Oh, oh okay, right. Well I've only seen like half an hour of I have to see I didn't know Walker had been nominated, but I did get a lot of people and what year did Catch Me If You Can come out? Uh, that was like late nineties or two thousand? Yeah, what two thousand one or two. Yeah. I I I do recall that clearly, Marcus, because at that particular moment, you know, there's a there's an up and down that goes in the entertainment business, quote unquote. Yeah. As you know, as far as well, now you're up, now you're being seen and thought about, uh, and now you're down, and everybody's forgotten, and now you're up again, and then now you're down again, and at that particular moment. It was, it was painful because, you know, the VHS tape had essentially become unavailable in the mid-90s, and nobody uh, could really get a hold of the film, and I didn't start hearing from companies about a DVD of Chameleon Street until 2004 when Home Vision uh, contacted me. And Home Vision started the restora- the first restoration in 2004. And then two years later, they were bought out by Image Entertainment. And then that began a whole different battle because Image Entertainment initially wanted to, uh, what's the expression, deep six? Uh, They wanted to drop Chameleon Street. And the only reason that they kept the contract is because my company agreed to pay for the rest of the restoration which had already begun in 2004 and image entertainment bought home vision in 2006. So in order to finish the restoration, you know, uh, that had to come out of my company's pocket and most death actually contributed to 
the budget. Oh wow! I didn't know. Yeah, and uh, you know, the film came out in December of 2007 on DVD, and then in 2014 the contract was up, and then that that DVD became unavailable unless you wanted to pay two hundred dollars, like on Amazon for a copy. Hey, looking back on it, I'm glad I have the copy that, that I've never, I, I get rid of DVDs every time I move because they just take up space. But that chameleon shoot is one of the, I'm never going to get rid of because every once in a while I would look at, I would look it up on Amazon. And it's like, wow, they want that much for it? Wow, geez. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But um, listen, I've, I've gotten a slightly lost. What was your question? No, no, just, I've, I, I will go, we were talk, we were getting on uh, Catch Me If You Can, and I, I have to say, if, if you've only seen about 30 minutes of it, whenever you have some downtime, check it out, because it's not, it, it, you'll find so many weirdly specific things. I mean, he poses as a doctor, uh, he poses as a college student, then there's like this kind of element of comic books in it, he goes to jail, like there's so many things, it's just like, wow, Chameleon Street, and then... There's this other level to the film where in real life, because it is based on a true story, how the, the, the guy, Frank Abagnale, who Leonardo DiCaprio plays, it's interesting how he was arrested, he was caught, and years later, he was given a job by the FBI afterwards. Whereas, you know, a guy like Douglas Street, it, it's just another interesting contrast. It does have to do with race, where it's like when they catch the black guy, put him in jail, they're done with him. But in the story of Catch Me If You Can, they catch this guy, he's white, and then he commits far worse crimes than Douglas Street. And then it's like, hey, do you want a job? The same people that, you know, one right. of years later they gave him a job. I always found that to be such an interesting – well, I'm being nice when I say interesting, but it's, a, it's such a strange contrast, you know. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's par for the course. Uh, you know, frankly, I'm learning quite a bit about what was in – catch me uh, from you right now in this conversation and uh -huh. now I understand you know I I didn't watch it but now I understand why I kept getting all those phone calls from people saying you know he, he, Spielberg ripped you off man Spielberg ripped you off and uh, you know it's you know it's an endless uh it's an endless, multi-layered atrocity. And, you know, for you to say that DiCaprio's character, which is based on a true story also, yes. was hired by the FBI, that is just amazing. But part of the course, you know, uh, I'm not the first black to say in America... There is a second act for every white. There's a second act, a third act, a fourth, on and on in perpetuity. But if you're black, then you may not even get a first act. That's true. That's very true. I mean, there's that famous joke that Chris Rock has where it's like, you know, as a white person, you could be homeless, tired, you know, like, you know, down on your luck. But instead of trading places with a black person who's doing all right, it's like, you know, I think I'm going to ride out this being white thing for a little bit and see where it takes me. It's, it's kind of a, it's kind of that same a, 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 anecdote that, that, that you just gave. Um, 
Yeah, and, uh, you know, I was just thinking, Marcus, I don't know if uh, you've read this anywhere, but, you know, the main the main award you get when you actually win the Sundance Grand Jury Award, I mean, they do give you a prize, a very beautiful uh, trophy, but the real reward is that you get meetings in Hollywood with every production company. Yeah. I, 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 oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I had meetings with the production companies of you know, all the top filmmakers, including Spielberg's Amblin. But the interesting thing is, Marcus, mm -hmm. when I look back and remember all of those meetings, meetings with Jane Fonda's company, with Barry Levinson's company, with Spielberg's company, Mel Brooks' company, Cher's mm -hmm. um, company, oh. uh, and Ed Pressman. I mean, the only people who actually met with me, there were only two. Ed Pressman and Mel Brooks, all the other ones, you know, I met with executives. And if it's very funny when you think about, or when you mention Spielberg, not not funny, ha ha, but funny, odd. Yeah, not not now that you mentioned what you just mentioned. Yeah, sure. You know, I was later told that um, Spielberg would uh, had some kind of a peephole that sometimes he would look through to see or observe in a clandestine fashion whatever meeting was taking place at Amblin. Now, I don't know if he was there looking at me from a peephole. All I know is that the only people who actually met with me are Mel Brooks and Ed Pressman. That's very interesting. With the, the Mel Brooks thing, it actually kind of makes sense because, like, with the you know the smaller kind of again I'm using the term maverick film. It's like David Lynch makes Eraserhead, and then the next thing we know, he's doing The Elephant Man, and that was like courtesy of Mel Brooks. You know, Mel Brooks right. was just like, oh wow, I want to meet this guy. You know, so in right. a weird way, it does kind of make sense. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Now I agree. You talk about awards and 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 stuff like that, and and I've over the the last couple of years I've built a relationship with Charles Burnett, and he's and and off record of our conversation, then and on record, we've talked about how like black filmmakers of a certain age, there's this thing where like people love to give them awards, but they're not that old and they still want to make movies. Like Charles Burnett's very open about the fact, like, it's nice to be praised, but it's like, I have ideas for movies. Like, I want to make a movie. Like, do you do you find that same frustration or do you see how, like, whether it's yourself or Charles Burnett or Julie Dash or, you know, even, you know, the late Kathleen Collins, like folks who were ahead of their time, and this is my opinion, they get these Lifetime Achievement Awards and it's kind of like, well, they're not dead yet. Like, what's the point of a Lifetime Achievement Award if they still are active and want to do stuff? Do you, do you find that frustrating? Because I feel like... Here's what, here's what I find, Marcus. Have you heard that expression, uh, 
you know, when something negative happens to a black in America, like, for example, uh, you know, all of the problems over the last 100 years that blacks have encountered when driving their car, it's, you know, that expression has come up, driving while black. Sure. You know, and when I hear you ask that question, I think about, Filmmaking while black, uh, yeah. you know, it's like a drive-by shooting because, uh, you know, you you go through all of the steps that you have to go through to make a feature film, and then they just drive by and blast you out of the water. So... I'm not sure if that answers your question, but no, 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 it does. I totally get, I get what you're saying. You know, but you know, in turn now in 2021 with so many more outlets and it's just being, and it's just easier now to make something, especially in film or TV. Is that something that you, you are looking to utilize with like streaming and just the, the easy access to, just kind of creating is that something that you plan to take advantage of more like going forward you know like whether it's youtube or video or just it seems like so many streaming platforms are just giving away shows to all these like odd out there ideas is that something that you because i personally i'll inject myself into this for a second i feel like you'd be a perfect fit for so much stuff you know what i mean like is this is this stuff that you're looking into and, and and planning on maybe doing let me say this, Marcus. I mean, certainly, I'm as excited as you are about all the different formats and how it's, uh, and you know, the, the ascendancy of streaming and, and you know, the ubiquity which seems to be showering down on all of us at this moment. However, however, the war is still going on, man. Mm. It's still a war over content. You know, oh, I was, I will tell you very briefly that I was approached by somebody, somebody that I actually had known in the nineties and he he got a job with Netflix and he approached me like three, four years ago. And Marcus, I'm telling you, uh, yeah, I'm, actually he approached me, like, it was around 2015. Mm-hmm. And, and all I can say is that discussion with him went nowhere because he he didn't really have the authority to back me up mm. and you know to back up whatever content i was proposing sure. and you know it it was the same syndrome as dealing with hollywood 30 years ago you know, the reason I received such antagonism 
from Hollywood is because I had content and I was offering content. You know, man, if you want to perform, uh, if you want to sing, dance, if you want to, you know, if you want to be a performer, uh, as I was talking, I was just thinking about, I don't know, for some reason, Cardi B split across my mind's eye for a second. You know, if, if you want to, and now Tyler Perry is crossing my mind. Look, if, if you want to produce content that is actually being dictated by whites in Hollywood, you can do that and you can be successful. And I'm sure you're aware, Marcus, that in the last 100 years, no black male or female has been so embraced and supported as Tyler Perry. Sure. And, yeah. you know, uh, not, not Sidney Poitier, not Paul Robeson, not Melvin Van Peebles, not John Singleton. Nobody has received the kind of backing that Tyler Perry has received. Yeah. And why is that? Why is that? That's because he is being given content by the same people in Hollywood who threw me under the bus. I, 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 I again, I have to step out on my journalistic side and go to my fan side and, and, and say I, I do a a absolutely agree. And it's also just, I, I don't want to turn this into Tyler Perry or just kind of criticizing his art and his work, but just the amount of stuff that he puts out, there's so much of it, and it just seems to be done so quickly and manufactured, too, that it's like, oh, it costs almost nothing to do this show or do this movie, but let's just keep it. It doesn't, doesn't really, quality seems to be secondary or even third, if, if, right. if, if I might say. So I think that's another thing behind it, too. Yeah, yeah, right. And, you know, if you look at the career of Paul Robeson, you know, mm -hmm. after the Emperor Jones in 1933, uh, and after, you know, he did Showboat in 1936 for Universal, uh, and then he, you know, fled to Europe, to, you know, to Britain to make more movies that he had more control of. But if you actually study Paul Robeson's film career, the entire oeuvre, you, you can see how this great talent was scuttled. You know, how, you know, you talk about the, the quality of, say, a Tyler Perry or whatever. You, you talk about how the quality doesn't seem to be there. You can actually see in every film that Paul Robeson worked so mightily to bring to fruition, you can see how, you know, the filmmaking is scuttled. Even, even when he went to England, you know, you, know, you, you ask yourself, 
why are they using that camera lens? Why does it look like they're using the bottom of a Coke bottle for a camera lens? Why was there a jump cut right there that was so raggedy? It looked like they were trying to make a mistake. Why is the positioning of Paul Robeson so so cursory and and so lacking subtlety. Uh, let me very quickly tell you a story that I was told Please. by the you know the black producer Rudy Langless, whom you may know from the executive producer role he played in Denzel Washington's The Hurricane. Which was oh, okay. right. Well. You know, Rudy is extremely erudite and extremely sophisticated in terms of script, structure, and character development. And, you know, like a lot of people in Hollywood, you know, they'll be called to a production that is working in order to consult on or give their opinion. And Rudy told me that he was called by a friend to come in and, you know, do some consulting work on the production of Air Force One with Harrison Ford. And at, at one point, Marcus, Rudy was suggesting something regarding black people in the movie, some kind of interplay with black people. And the white producer that he was sharing, you know, this with, looked at him and said, don't you think that that's a little too subtle, su subtle for black people, you know, black characters uh, to, you know, black people have not been allowed to be subtle, Marcus. You know, <laughs> we have not been allowed to be, to breathe and as I was just saying uh, like a, a, a couple of weeks ago white people have had the luxury for a hundred years of acting roles that begin with repose and then go all the way through all the different degrees of emotion to rant you know, from repose to rant and everything in between. Now, white people have had that luxury, whereas, and, you know, that means they can be subtle, they can be three-dimensional, but when it comes to black people, we are constantly overblown, over-emotional, pushed into being over sex, uh, you know, we're always down on the, the far side of the, the scale where rant, R-A-N-T, rant takes place. We are always pushed in that direction. Yep. I mean, I watch a lot of films, you know, that are either made by us or starring us for personal reasons, for work reasons, so... I, I, I completely get it. I mean, do you, this is such a broad, vague question, but, like, do you see glimmers of hope for modern black c cinema? 
and again, if this is too broad of a question, because this is something that could just be its own talk in its own interview. So if it's if it's too broad, I understand if you don't really have an answer to that. But do you see glimmers of hope, whether it be films or writers or directors or or, or, or people who kind of make you go, oh? Can I can I give you a one word answer, please? Sure. Yes. Great. Awesome. Okay. That's Most definitely, yeah. That's good to hear. I, I don't want to keep you too. I know you said you only had thirty minutes. You've gone well above that. I I don't want to keep you too long. I I, I definitely have have a few more questions, but uh, if you have to take off, I totally understand. I think. Oh, hello. Hello. Okay, yeah, I think we're 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 nearing nearing time. Unfortunately, if you if you want to do one more question, that's fine. Yeah, this is kind of like a random Hail Mary question because you, you have some acting roles. The out-of-sight appearance makes perfect sense because your relationship with Steven Soderbergh. But I always wondered when you showed up in, in Road Trip, it was kind of like, whoa, what is this about? How, how did that come about? Because that's very random to me considering your background in film <laughs> comedy. I, uh... <laughs> Yeah, and you're the first. You're the first one to ask me that. Wow. Uh, Road trip, which, by the way, I have yet to see, but road trip came about because the producer of road trip had been really in love with uh, Out of Sight and Chameleon Street. Look here, Marcus. I. I I want you to know, mm-hmm. and I think you're the first one that I've actually shared this with, but wow. I want you to know that from like 1999 until 2010, I was approached four times with major roles in Hollywood films. Mm-hmm. And I... I want you to know that each of them, each of those four roles that were, you know, different studios, different films, different scripts, but each of the roles that I was offered of those four were some form of pedophile. Whoa. And, you know, when it comes to the black image in film, uh, it has been so rigorously denigrated. And, you know, you, you, you explained to me, man, you explained to me why Wendell B. Harris Jr. would be, over a 10-year period, offered four pedophile roles. I, I, I can't. I, I, I can't. I don't know if they want to think about that. I, I, I can't understand why. Well, it's been wonderful talking to you, Marcus, because, uh, yeah, right. Well, well, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. And I hope you're feeling, I hope you're feeling better. I hope you're feeling good. I hope your health health is good and all that. Um, Well, thank you. Thank you. Once upon a time it rained nine or ten, maybe nine inches in the forest, and a lot of the pathways that the animals used for walking around were flooded. If you got that. So, like, it's a major disaster area. And, and the scorpion, you see, he he's searching for some way. Anyway, 
get across the stream, which was now very much like a river because of the heavy precipitation. Now, the scorpion, being a scorpion, couldn't swim, and he was standing by the edge of the water talking about... Uh-oh. The scorpion felt enormous psychological and... Psychosomatic. pressure. How can he ever get across the surging river and skedaddle back home to his mom and his dad and his apartment and his 45s and his personal computer and his destiny? Which is to sting your ass. Ow! In any case, the scorpion is so worried, he's beside himself, his favorite position. <laughs> and then all at once, a frog appeared alongside the scorpion. And the frog said, the rain was truly radical. I'll see you later. And then the scorpion said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah. How are you going to get across? And the frog said, <laughs> I'm going to swim across. So the scorpion brightened up considerably because he had an idea. Okay, frog, you give me a ride on your back. When we get to the other side, I'll reimburse you with some chips. I got your chip. But the frog wasn't exactly a moron. The frog was stupid. He said... I'm comatose. How are you? And the frog said, If I give you a ride, you'll sting me and I'll die. And then everybody will come to my funeral and say, He really was a moron, wasn't he? And the scorpion said, Trust me. Yeah, right. You know you can trust me. Why will I sting you when you're saving my life? The frog stopped and thought. The scorpion's logic was irrefutable. Even Mr. Spock couldn't argue with that. It would be crazy to bite the hand that fed you, or in this case, sting the back that bore you. The frog said, All right, hop on. But this is going to cost you a lot of chips. Oh, yes, I know, I know, whispered the scorpion, gratefully, as he delicately positioned himself squarely on top of the frog. The frog leaped into the stream with the scorpion on his back. He had to swim real, real hard because the current was against him. When the frog was halfway across, he began to feel a little tired. Kept going anyway. This is where those aerobics classes paid off. And then the scorpion stung the frog with his deadly poisonous stinger. Big deal. The frog could feel the poison numb his arms and legs. They began to stiffen up. I could just D.I.E. die. Don't worry, you will. He began to sink. Yikes! Before he did, he had to ask the scorpion one question. Why? 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 Why did you do it, you fool? Now we're both going to die. What could you have been thinking of? Why? Why? Right before they sank to their death, the scorpion kind of shrugged and said, Well, because it's my character.